You're listening to Culture and Christianity, a podcast of In-Town Community Church. You will find in the description for this episode links to handouts and resources that are mentioned during this episode. Thanks for listening. So these will pick up where we left off last week, and uh, we are posting resources online, including a recording of last week, a copy of last week's handout, and uh, the slides that we used last week. Also, a reading list, a resource list that uh, was one page long last week, and it's growing each week. I'm going to add more and more things. We'll keep sending that link out so that you can add uh, more things if you're interested in doing any follow-up. So, it's week two of four, what your pastor wants you to know about Christian nationalism, if you pull out your handout, um, at the very top you'll see three goals. And uh, we set the table last week by saying, these are our three goals for our four weeks together, the three things that your pastor wants you to know. One is how to experience gospel peace. The second is how to grow in gospel wisdom. And a third is how to build gospel bridges. Peace, wisdom, bridges. Um, Why those three things? Number one, uh, my reading has convinced me that uh, there are two kinds of fear around this topic of Christian nationalism. Uh, One is a fear... That Christian nationalism itself is a terrible problem and that we aren't equipped to uh, handle it and respond well. So I can be afraid of Christian nationalism. The other kind of fear is um, things are going on in our culture and the right response would be a response that looks a lot like Christian nationalism. So fear is driving me to Christian nationalism or Christian nationalism is causing my fear. Either way, there's a lot of fear around this Topic, And we want to listen to Jesus and learn from him a kind of gospel peace that doesn't ignore the issues, but also doesn't let fear be our primary motivator. Uh, so that's, that's behind that concept of gospel peace. Gospel, uh, gospel wisdom is just learning more about the topic um, and learning how to lean into it in ways that are uh, rooted in the wisdom that we have from Christ. And then third, gospel bridges. How do we build bridges to people who don't believe what we do? How do we build bridges to people who think differently about Christian faith than we do? Who think differently about the Christian and Christian nationalism than we do? Uh, How do we build bridges to people who think differently about politics than we do? They may share our Christian faith, but think very differently about the nationalism side of that phrase. Um, How do we build bridges uh, rooted in the gospel and for the gospel uh, in conversation and love uh, with and for people who uh, don't share our Christian faith or our understanding of how to apply it in the world? So those are three things I want you to know. It'll take about 30 years. To, uh, to do all that work. So, um, 
We'll start by a little review of what we did last week under the heading of gospel peace, knowing what Jesus says. Last week we looked at Luke chapter 21. I've just hit some highlights on one slide here from Luke 21. This is Jesus answering the question, you know, when are you going to return and restore the kingdom to Israel? And, and Jesus does some unpacking of all of history that's going to unfold before he returns. And some big themes of that history. And one big theme as he talks to us about that history is do not be frightened. Don't be afraid. Which implies things are going to happen in this world that will have the potential to make us afraid. He wouldn't need to say that if scary things weren't going to happen in our world. And yet he says, even though you live in a world where scary things are going to happen, I don't want you to be afraid. He relates those scary things to nations and kingdoms and to political rulers and governors. And he says, in the midst of all of that, the most important thing is not to bear testimony to a political system or a political leader. Let let your life and words show that your primary loyalty is to me. You will bear testimony to me. And then he says, um, you know, just be prepared. It won't be easy to live in this world as someone whose primary allegiance is to a crucified Messiah. They will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But don't be afraid because not a hair of your head will perish. Like Living in that duality of saying, on the one hand, no one can hurt me. On the other hand, they can't kill me. On the one hand, death is a sobering reality. On the other hand, it is not the greatest reality in this universe. Those are the roots of gospel peace. And we hear that from a Savior who is, he knows what he's talking about. Because when he answers this question, he is only a matter of days away from his own death. And resurrection. So, will we learn things that concern us as we study Christian nationalism more deeply? Yes. Will they have potential to frighten us? Yes. Is Christian nationalism a response to some things that will have the potential to frighten us? Yes. We live in a world where a lot of things make us afraid but not a hair of your head will perish. And those are not my words. That's not my promise. It's a promise from Jesus. Gospel wisdom. Know what Christian nationalism is. I've given you on your handout a a repeat of the definition that we built our way up to last week. Uh, It comes from a a book by Stephen Grosby. Um, I told you last week it's a part of this series that you should want to own just because... They're so physically attractive, right? I mean, who doesn't want a book this size to carry around in their hand to read in the 10 minutes between this appointment and that? And, uh, and then you get this collection of hundreds of them. They're all different colors, right? It's this Oxford University series called A Very Short Introduction to. And uh, Stephen Grosby is the scholar who wrote this one, A short, Very Short Introduction to Nationalism. 
And uh, uh, this one is a very short introduction to populism. I've, I've found these helpful orientations um, and a good sort of snapshot of where current scholarship on these issues uh, is. Plus, as I said, they're just cute. So, <clears throat> and they're on our resource list that circulated last week. Uh, let me show you a couple other books as we work our way through the morning. Um, let me go ahead and recommend this one. It's on our resource list. It's by a scholar named David Koizis. It's called Political Visions and Illusions. Uh, this is the second edition of his book, and it's a really helpful book by a Christian scholar who looks at various political ideologies, and he says, what is good about each one of them? What, what proper aspect of life in God's good creation is emphasized by socialism, for example? Now, some people in this room might go, there's nothing good about socialism. Everything about socialism is horrific. Well, I challenge you to read what he has to say. Right? And then he turns around and says, now here's what goes wrong when the human heart makes an idol out of socialism. Socialism makes a god out of that created good. And here's how that goes wrong. And then he does that for uh, conservatism. What's good about a conservative approach to politics? What goes wrong when we make a god out of that? Liberalism. What's good about that? What goes wrong when we make a god? You get, you get the picture. Even, and and there's a, he has a chapter on democratism. What happens when you make a god out of democracy? Um, and so really insightful, very helpful. Um, would, would encourage you to take a deeper dive if you're interested in those kinds of topics. That's a great guide. Um, <clears throat> here's the definition that we built up. There is a chapter in here about nationalism and uh, what's good about nationalism. What does it get right? What goes wrong when you make an idol out of the nation or out of the subgroup in a nation that claims to be the true citizenship, the true nation? Um, what goes wrong? And so, great chapter there on nationalism uh, helped me to, to build up this kind of generic definition that Grosby gives of nationalism. What is Christian nationalism? A belief that the nation is the instrument of God, the home of his people, so that it becomes the only goal worthy of pursuit. Kind of merging God's work in the world with a particular nation and its history and usually with what is perceived to be the dominant group within that history. Even if not dominant numerically, nationalism tends to build around, we are the true Italians. We are the true Germans. We are the true Aryan race. We are the true America. And uh, God's working through us. We're the true believers. And it leads to this place of, of demanding a loyalty that belongs only to God, demanding that for the nation. Um, so, your pastor wants you to know, we said this last week, Christian nationalism is not Christian. Um, and uh, why? Because it makes a God of the nation. You, you can't be a Christian and worship a nation. 
as the God. Right? Now, you, you could be a Christian and adopt some of the perspectives of Christian nationalism, and, and I, I would encourage you as your pastor to, to mature and grow beyond those perspectives. You can, you can find some appeal in this, be a, be a Christian who's wrestling with these issues, but at the end of the day, you, you can't tie your heart to a false god and tie your heart to Jesus. Right? Jesus says that about money, for example. You can't serve God and mammon. One student wrote on an exam one time in my class, you can't serve God and mama. <laughs> I think he needed to you know, proofread the answer one more time. But he got the general point, right? Um, some core traits, we talked about these last week. Um, core traits of Christian nationalism. So if, if that's kind of a definition back there, what does that lead to in practice? A few core traits that I'm encountering as I read more and more. And I'm reading a pretty wide range of stuff. I'm reading some stuff by people who are Christian nationalists and think that all Christians should be Christian nationalists. I'm reading some stuff by people who... Um, are Christians critiquing Christian nationalism? I'm, I'm reading things by people who aren't Christians who are critiquing it and who along the way are critiquing a lot of things about Christianity as though it were nationalistic in some kind of broad sweeping ways that aren't careful. I'm reading a lot. These are some core things that are, I'm seeing over and over. Threat response. Okay, I'm putting asterisks by Christian and Christianity on this slide for a reason. Why? They're not really Christian. They're Christian and Christian nationalism is no. no. So stay tuned for this morning's sermon. Um, I I did a lot of reading this week about Christian anti-Semitism. Well, I think I'd want to put an asterisk there too. Anti-Semitism is not Christian. Nationalism is not Christian. Have people often done anti-Semitic things in the name of Christ? Yes. Sadly, yes. Are there variants of nationalism that have the name Christian attached to them? Yes. It's not really Christian. So, threat response. This kind of perception that Christianity, or some version of it, some understanding of it, embodies national values and traditions that are under attack. And it's our values and traditions as a nation, as a people, as a group that are under attack. And Christianity is, is a summary of those things. Identity. Christianity is a marker of true America. Substitute your nation for the word America there. It exists to promote national identity. So one of the characteristics of Christian nationalism is, is like tail wagging dog. It is, it is um, Christianity is a tool that advances the true identity of the nation. And the true identity of the nation has become the God, has become the, the thing valued most. And Christianity is the thing that helps you recapture that true identity. 
could read some speeches by the premier of, of Italy, recently elected, who appeals to Europe's uh, Christian past in a lot of the speeches that she gives. Primacy. Christians or Christian perspectives. Again, th- those who are perceived as Christians, perceived perspectives perceived to be Christian, are assumed to have primacy of place in public discourse. That uh, when we talk about the nation, when we talk about um, public life, when we talk about law, then there, there tends to be an assumption in Christian nationalism that because this is a Christian nation, then this perspective should be assumed to be correct. Um, with, with a corresponding um, kind of sense of, of offense if that primacy isn't granted. And then a, a tendency toward nostalgia. Often nationalism, whether the Christian variety or not, uh, is accompanied by a sense of there was a time when this group had more cultural and political influence, and we kind of want to recapture that moment. The Christian variant of that is there was a time when Christians, Christian perspectives had more cultural and political influence, and we want to recapture that. Um, have you ever had a friend who criticized everything you did and never, never told you a better way to do it? I worked with someone like that once, and it was, I hated it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm making photocopies, getting ready to go do a lecture in a class. What are you copying? Blah, 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 I'm doing this. Oh, I wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> Three minutes before class. I'm a first-year teacher, and you're telling me that now? Um, <laughs> I don't want to be that pastor. <laughs> it's like, oh, here are some things that I think are unhealthy markers of Christian nationalism, but let's not do better. <laughs> let's do better. What are some healthier alternatives? And so you'd see on your handout, let you a little space there to, uh, to kind of do a little compare and contrast. Christian nationalism is going to say, hey, we are under attack and we need to respond to a threat. I think this is a healthier alternative that as your pastor, I would want to disciple you toward. Instead of talking about attack and threat, let's acknowledge that we are living in a changing context. Christianity, no asterisk this time, I'm talking about the real deal. <laughs> Embodies biblical truths that are in conflict with many current cultural values and trajectories. Not all. Some of the values and trajectories of our current cultural moment are consistent with biblical truth and teaching. We are not at war with our culture. We are not at war with our neighbors about everything. There are some biblical truths that are in conflict, direct contradiction to some of the values and perspectives of our culture. We have to acknowledge that. 
nationalism tends to start with a posture of we are under attack and we have to neutralize the threat. It is very difficult to feel like I have to neutralize a threat without seeing an actual neighbor as a threat. And there is this tension within biblical Christianity that says, on the one hand, there is a spiritual war constantly happening. On the other hand, we are not at war with our neighbors. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Even the person who is at war with you, you are not at war with them. Love your enemy. And so leaning into that, with, with, with a healthy understanding of that tension, it seems to me that nationalism does away with the tension and tends to lean more into the attack, threat, warfare, bunker, lob the grenades over at the enemies. And if you're not with us, you're against us. Remember a moment in, in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Hey, you sent us into that village to see if we could find a place to stay for the night and they don't want us? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven right now and just wipe them off the face of the earth? <laughs> Scripture does not record a response. <laughs> right? It's like Jesus going, <sighs> Y'all. <laughs> I'm not even. Right Or Peter pulls out his sword when Jesus is being arrested, starts swinging it. And um, I don't think Peter was trying to cut this guy's ear off, right? Usually in a, a battle, you're, just, maybe Peter's not very skilled with a sword, but, but Jesus just says, that's enough. Stop. This is not who we are. Um, <clears throat> second, identity. Well, Okay, let's talk about identity, but, but, but let's put it in context of history. Historically, has Christianity flourished in America? Sure, yes, yes. In all parts of America equally? No. At all times in our history? No. Always in the most pure form? No. But in general, I think it's appropriate to say Christianity has flourished in America. And a Christian consensus has been foundational for much of the history of our nation. Notice I'm not saying we have always been a Christian nation. But, but I'm, I'm using this phrase, Christian consensus, from um, the writings of Francis Schaeffer. I, I think he does a good job of saying Hey, for example, you can't say we have inalienable rights unless you think there is someone bigger than us to give us those rights. Are they inalienable? If our, if our Declaration of, of Independence mentions inalienable rights, they are rights that no government could ever take away, there's got to be someone in the universe bigger than every government. And that consensus that there was some kind of being greater than nature a supernatural deity. That consensus gave a foundation for a whole lot of political thinking throughout the history of our nation. That's not the same as saying 
We are a Christian nation. Right? So that's part of our history. But those things are not essential to Christian identity. Uh, We can have our identity in Christ even if Christianity isn't flourishing in our nation. I want it to flourish. I hope it will. But who Jesus is and who we are in him isn't changed by whether or not Christianity is flourishing at a given moment in in a given place. If that begins to change, our identity isn't threatened. We have gospel peace in the midst of that change. And uh, even if we lived in a nation that hadn't been built around what you could call a Christian consensus, we could still have an identity rooted in Christ. Who Jesus is doesn't change. If you live in the Roman Empire under a dictator (laughs) versus living in the Netherlands when uh, you had a a lot of explicit Christian influence in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. That's not our identity. And instead of talking about primacy of Christian perspectives, I think it would be healthier to talk about parity. Not the bird kind of parity. Parity, a sense of equality. Christians and Christian perspectives have a rightful place in public discourse alongside other people who aren't Christians and alongside other perspectives that aren't Christian. Nationalism makes the mistake of saying those other perspectives don't really belong as much as the Christian ones. Secularism makes the mistake of saying If you have a religious perspective, you must keep it private. You cannot bring it into the public square. I think a healthier biblical understanding of Christianity says something more like this. It's right for us to bring our perspectives as believers in Jesus into all of life. Find wise and loving ways to do that. But those aren't the only perspectives, especially in a country that's built to allow for religious freedom and and, uh, some pluralism there. Now, that implies patient persuasion is required. If I know my perspective isn't the only one allowed in the marketplace of ideas, then i got to be committed to persuading people over time. And it's patient persuasion. If, if the framework of your ideas is very different from mine, then it's going to take longer to persuade you. If we share a similar framework and we just got to make some adjustments, it might not take us long. Uh, but, but we're in a cultural moment when, uh, yeah, Patient persuasion is required. Read, read an article by a Pastor Kevin DeYoung in Charlotte who makes that point. Um, that, hey, the Christian nationalist project seems to think that a whole lot of 
cultural change can happen quickly if all the saints get on board. And he says, no, I think, I think the project is longer, takes more patience um, than that. And then finally, instead of nostalgia, an attempt to recapture a past age. It would be far more fruitful for us as believers in Jesus to think in terms of mission. How can we be faithful in this time and place? Instead of trying to recapture a different time or a different place. What does faithfulness in this moment, in this place, look like? Uh, I think those would be some healthier alternatives. So, I don't want to be that guy who says three minutes before class that you got it all wrong. And I'm not here to help you. I, I think these are some healthier ways to, to say, look, if, if these are some of the characteristics of nationalism and of Christian nationalism particularly, what might we want to embody instead? I think this takes us a step in that direction. Okay, what I want to do next, a couple of things. One is you're going to um, score some points, and it's not going to be a contest, but you're going to score yourself. Do some, some questions, some points, and we'll talk a little bit about those. Um, those will have more to do with our gospel wisdom category. Before we do that, let's, let's explore um, gospel bridges for a few minutes. And then, uh, those of you who love competition. It's not a competition, but yeah, you'll get to score some points. Gospel bridges. Your pastor wants you to know people who don't believe what you do. Um, we hinted at this last week. I want to develop it a little bit more and just say uh, we, we've, we need to understand the time and place where we live. If that mission is not about recapturing another time, but about being faithful here and now, um, what do our neighbors believe? Do we know and love people who don't believe the things, same things that we do? What if you're talking to someone about politics as a Christian and the person you're talking to is genuinely convinced that there are no transcendent values? What will they, what will they think if you want to bring your values as a Christian into public life, thinking about government and politics? Where are those values coming from? Remember, from, from the perspective of the neighbor we are learning to love, there are no transcendent values. So the values you want to bring into our corporate life as citizens, shaped by your Christian faith, aren't transcendent in their view. In their view, they're just another human construct that you're trying to force on them. No wonder they're nervous about Christian nationalism. Now, I, I think that that aspect of secular culture 
a culture that says, by and large, there are, there, there are good values, but they aren't transcendent. They're not rooted in the existence of something bigger than humanity or bigger than nature. We can have those values. We just have to be honest and say, they came from us. Now that starts to sound like it's a kind of a contest between which us gets to impose their values on the other. And, and that sounds... I would be very afraid of Christian nationalism if I believed this. I think this would give us a little more sympathy for people who are nervous about Christian nationalism. And at least a little bit of intellectual understanding of why even legitimate Christian involvement in politics may feel and sound like Christian nationalism to many of our neighbors. Oops. Did our battery die? I'll keep going with it. Um, so, so the reason I'm asking us to, to think about this question is, is because it will remind us to get to know actual people. Instead of getting to know the person you want to get to know, the person who you don't have to have this hard conversation, <laughs> the actual person you're talking to, may, oh, thank you, may have embraced this uh, very common secular perspective. I'll recommend some books in the next couple weeks if you want to learn more about the shifts going on in our culture toward uh, secularism. Um, but I think that plays in. So we're, we're getting to know someone. It may seem innocent enough for us as believers in Jesus to say, if Jesus is Lord of everything, then i got to bring him into my thinking about everything. And that includes bringing him into my thinking about politics, bringing him into my thinking about government, bringing him into my thinking about laws, courts, legislation, That sounds good and well from a Christian perspective, but if the person you're talking to doesn't have that foundation, well, it makes sense that to them it may sound like, well, this is just a contest of which non-transcendent value system gets imposed as though it were transcendent. I don't think that's a right way to look at the universe. I think it's a common way. We have to understand that. A little sympathy for uh, neighbors. What if you think religious truth claims ought to be strictly private? That's another marker of post-Christian or secular culture. It would be to say, it is okay for you to be religious. It is okay for you to be spiritual. It is okay for you to think that there are some truths, but remember, there are no transcendent values, so there are no transcendent truths, so truth claim is just kind of in quotes here. Therefore, anything you think about those things ought to remain strictly private. That's only for Sunday mornings. That's only for your prayer time in your house by yourself with your family. Don't bring it into conversation at the office. Don't bring it into conversation Uh, on the sideline at the soccer game. Don't bring it into conversation about politics and government. It doesn't belong here. 
Well, if the person you're getting to know and love is persuaded that that is true, then when you speak differently, it sounds like you don't understand the rules of our society. And it sounds to them like you are transgressing a fundamental rule of love. I don't believe you are. Right? But they do. And so we need to be aware of that. Know what the person we're talking to believes and thinks. Don't be shocked if they think you're a Christian nationalist because you want to bring your faith into your thinking about politics. Don't be surprised if they misunderstand you. It's okay. Great opportunity for conversation. Uh, now I'll flip it around. What if you're talking about to someone who is a Christian and the only framework they have ever had for living out their Christian faith is being completely turned upside down? Like the framework they've had for living out their Christian faith was one in which Christianity was culturally respected and influential. And now they're living in a moment when it seems like Christianity is hated. Like the more Christian you are, the more immoral you are. And if all of that is being turned upside down, might you be afraid? Might you be so afraid that you think a nationalistic response is reasonable in that moment of fear? I think you might be. I'm not saying that's the right response, but I'm saying we have neighbors who think this way. And if we take time to get to know them, we'll we'll get there. We'll hear them speaking like this. We'll understand. Um, So a little sympathy. What if you have no place to take your fear? We talked a bit about that last week. Questions to ask in conversation with people. Let's say I'm talking to someone who's deeply afraid of Christian nationalism. Or I'm talking to someone who's deeply afraid and they think Christian nationalism is the right response to that fear. Hey, it sounds to me like you're deeply concerned. What are you afraid of? Like instead of just going, "Uh, you just made me feel uncomfortable. I've got to get back to work. Or, I'm offended by what you just said. Let's just not talk about these things anymore. What if we respond by saying, Wow, I hear some deep concern there. Tell me more about it. What makes you so concerned? What are you afraid of? If you don't mind, I'd like to know know more. Why does that make you afraid? Do you have a place to take that fear? Questions to ask. Here's one other question to ask. I would invite you, let's ask God this question. (laughs) Heavenly Father, sometime in the next three months, can I have an awkward conversation about politics with somebody? (laughs) Can we pray for this? Pray for this opportunity. And see what happens.
an awkward conversation about politics that could lead to a deeper conversation about Jesus. Maybe not all at once. Maybe we don't get from politics to Jesus in three minutes. Maybe it takes three months. But Lord, could you do this sometime in the next three months? What if everybody in this room had that opportunity? What if we all prayed for that and only a tenth of us had the opportunity? Though 100% of us had to pray for it. (laughs) I know it's going to be awkward. I'm just going to go ahead and make that part of my prayer. It doesn't count, Lord, if it's comfortable and casual. The only way I'll know that you're the one answering this prayer is if it's completely awkward. Then I'll know it's you. (laughs) Then I'll know it's real. Otherwise, I might think I've been in a time machine and put in a different different century. (laughs) Wow. Questions to ask God. To build bridges, gospel bridges, showing that we're, we're not too afraid to hear what people actually think. We're not too afraid to acknowledge that, you know what, 100 years ago, more people would have shared our sense that there are transcendent values. But we don't live 100 years ago. People don't share that sense now. And it's okay to be honest about that. And it's okay to say, man, Jesus teaches me differently. But if you don't know him and he hasn't taught you that, well, let's, let's talk. Okay. Now, it's... Um, Gospel wisdom about some troubling trends. This is where you're going to get score points. Uh, We're going to start here. Trend number one, unhealthy assumptions. Everything that's called Christian really is Christian. That's an unhealthy assumption. Right? We've already mentioned that earlier with a couple examples. Christian anti-Semitism is not Christian. The history of anti-Semitism connects with the history of Christianity in a lot of complex and many sad ways. But it's not Christian. It's not consistent with Christianity at all. Christian nationalism. Make a god of the nation. It's not consistent with Christianity. Not everything that's called Christian really is Christian Here's another unhealthy assumption. Everything that is called Christian nationalism really is Christian nationalism. Hmm. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. Here's your quick survey. Six questions. You're going to score yourself. I've given you a little box in your handout. You'll give yourself four points if you strongly agree. Three points if you agree. Zero points if you strongly disagree. One if you disagree. And two if you're undecided. Six questions. Maximum score is 24 points. Um, Minimum score, zero. So, here we go. Number one. The federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. I'm taking these questions from a book I'll describe to you in just a minute. So, federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. If 
you strongly agree, four points. Strongly disagree, zero. No context, no nuance. That's just, you got to pick. Right? <clears throat> Number two, the federal government should advocate Christian values. You strongly agree with that? Agree with it? Afraid to know what the person sitting next to you thinks? Think God might already be answering that prayer about the awkward conversation? Number three, the federal government should enforce strict separation of church and state. All right. Give yourself some points. Number one, federal government declared the United States Christian nation. Number two, federal government should advocate Christian values. Number three, federal government should enforce strict separation of church and state. Ready for the next set? Three more. I already did this, by the way. I scored 14 points. The federal government should allow the display of religious symbols in public spaces. Number four. The federal government should allow the display of religious symbols in public spaces. What symbols? What spaces? No, stop. You don't get that. You get this sentence and the points that go with it. Number five, the success of the United States is part of God's plan. I strongly disagree. Zero. I strongly agree. Four. Give yourself some points. Number six, the federal government should allow prayer in public schools. All right. Six questions. Scale from zero points to 24 points. Um. We'll talk about that in just a moment. It comes from this book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, Andrew Whitehead, Samuel Perry. Um, one of them, which one is it? I forget. One, one of them teaches at Clemson University, so you know it's, you know it's got to be a good book. Don't make a God of Clemson. <laughs> you know, there's not a chapter in this book about college football. But there really should be. A very short introduction to college football. I don't think Oxford University has published that one just yet. <laughs> no? <laughs> Allison's shaking her head. <laughs> um, so, Taking America Back for God. Um, research done over a decade using the survey that we just walked through. Um, Let's talk about it a little bit. You don't have to tell anybody your score on this. You don't have to tell anybody what you think unless you want to. Right now, I'm telling you, I scored 14. The federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. I strongly disagree with that. No, I got zero here. Um, I don't think that needs to happen. Even if I think there are reasons for people to disagree about whether the United States has ever been a Christian nation, when you put it this way, the federal government should declare it, I'm like, yeah, I'm out. Number two, the federal government should advocate Christian values. Make a case that the right answer to that from a Christian perspective is 
No. Anybody want to make that case? The federal government should advocate Christian values. Jim? Which Christian values? <laughs> the Presbyterian Christian values or the Seventh-day Adventist Christian values? The LDS Christian values? Okay, yeah, yeah. So if, if, if you're thinking like that, you might be like strongly disagree or at least disagree. Um, make a case that the answer should be yes. David? You don't get to ask that question. <laughs> David is a lawyer. So of course he's asking a question. Yes. Yes. Okay, great. I love the nuance. I love the way David's thinking. Um, Look, here's one Christian value. One thing that I think could be called a Christian value. Murder is wrong. I would like for my government to advocate for that value. I would like for my government to take a strong stance saying we believe murder is wrong. Now... And do I mean that the government should say that because it's Christian to say that? Uh, but that's, that's I'm just going to tell you I put agree as my answer on this question. Because, now, Jim, I love the way you're thinking. But I'm also going, if you don't give me any nuance and you don't ask me, you don't let me ask all those follow-up questions and all those follow-up questions, which I would love to do, if you just give me that statement, I'm going to go, yeah, there's some values that I would uh, describe as Christian that I would hope every government would advocate for, one of them being that theft is wrong, one of them being that murder is wrong, right? Um, now, you may be like, I don't want you to be my pastor anymore if you said if you scored three points, if you scored 14 points on this survey, I'm out. <laughs> the point we're getting to is that these questions actually, they require a lot of nuance to hammer out a sophisticated answer. This survey instrument is used with, without the opportunity for all that fine-tuning to classify people into four groups. Those who advocate for Christian nationalism, uh, those who uh, advocate against it, and then a couple of groups in between. Uh, One of those groups is called accommodators. You're not advocating for Christian nationalism, but you're leaning in that direction. You think it's a good thing. You think it's okay. I'm an accommodator, apparently. Not everything that's called Christian nationalism is Christian nationalism. I am here telling you Christian nationalism is not Christian. I don't think it's a healthy approach. I want to disciple you away from it. And yet, according to this book, I almost am it. I almost am it. Um, Yes, the federal government should enforce strict separation of church and state. I put undecided there mainly because I 
think um, we're not clear as a society what we mean by strict separation of church and state. And some people mean by that it is always wrong to speak publicly about any religious or spiritual uh, commitments. And I, I don't think that's true. Um, federal government should allow the display of religious symbols in public space, spaces. Well, I agree. There's a lot of nuance behind that answer. This survey instrument doesn't ask me for any of that nuance. Right? You could even make the case that removing a religious symbol from a public space is itself a re- an act of religious symbolism. It's symbolizing the fact that my religious conviction is that this doesn't belong in public. Right? Lots of complicated issues. I don't think we can get that them, at them through these six questions. And uh, so as a result, I think a lot of things that are being labeled as Christian nationalism or adjacent to Christian nationalism really are not. Now, I hope you've heard me say for at least one and a half weeks, Christian nationalism is a real problem, a real issue. And there are some things about it that need to be taken seriously and that are seriously misguided. Also hear me saying, the more I read, the more I see sort of a historic Christian perspective on citizenship and involvement in civic life is being put under the umbrella of Christian nationalism. I've already hinted at a couple reasons why I think that is. One is kind of this secular perspective that anything about your Christian faith is private and needs to stay there. If you disagree with that, and I don't have a category to put it in, and I hear this new category of Christian nationalism, I might put it there if I don't know where else to put it. If I'm not a Christian and I don't understand that historic understanding. It's the reason why one of the men who has discipled me is being labeled as a Christian nationalist now. His name is Francis Schaefer. I never knew him personally. He discipled one of my disciplers. I, I, that label is not appropriate. We'll talk a little bit about that in the next couple of weeks. But what I want us to see is just to kind of be ready that uh, the umbrella is big, right? The umbrella of the way Christian nationalism is being spoken about in our culture and in this moment is very broad, and many things that are part of a healthy Christian life are, are, are being put under that umbrella. Uh, so, for example, same book gives a list of the top 10 predictors. I were going to predict that someone feels favorably about Christian nationalism. What would be the top 10 things that if, if they say this, this, or this, then that's a predictor that they would also speak favorably about Christian nationalism? I wonder what's on that list. Well, I happen to know because I've read the book. Um, Identifying with political conservatism is 
the top, the number one predictor, according to the Whitehead and Perry book. Identifying as Bible-believing. Okay, look, the grammar nerds out there, you're going, Jimmy, that's a mistake. Identifying and identify, you should have said it the same way both times. I'm just being a good scholar. This is a verbatim quoted from the book. I know, I'm frustrated too. (laughs) If you say that the Bible is the literal word of God, that's the third top predictor that you would be favorable toward Christian nationalism. If you say that the Bible is perfectly true, though not meant to be literally interpreted, or if you do not identify as religiously unaffiliated, this is kind of a negative predictor. If you say that you are religiously affiliated, that's the fifth predictor that you would be. Hmm. So here's what I want to say. Um, these, these things are not uh, in a cause-effect relationship with being a Christian nationalist. This book says so. It's careful scholarship. There are paragraphs of caveats and nuance. And, of course, we don't believe that these things are in that direct cause-effect relationship. And what I wonder is whether most people in our society are going to remember all those caveats. Or whether what we're going to hear is... I'm 15, I'm a member of a Christian church, and people here keep talking about the Bible being the word of God, and I've heard that that makes you a Christian nationalist, so I don't want to believe that the Bible is the word of God. So here I am as a pastor saying, I want to disciple you into these things. I want you to identify as a Bible-believing person. I think that's a core element of commitment to Jesus. Another way to say that, believing that the Bible is the literal word of God. If you, if you were to say that, I'd be okay with it. Now, we could have some long conversations about what literal means and, and how do you treat metaphors and symbols in Scripture. But, yeah, okay. Perfectly true. Yes. I want as many people as possible to believe that. I want you to identify as religiously affiliated, (laughs) affiliated with Jesus, right? Christian, yes. And I'm not saying I want every Christian to be politically conservative. I do think every Christian should leave space for other Christians to adopt the perspective of political conservatism Now, I'd encourage you to read kind of a nuanced presentation of it in a book like this. Understand the dangers, understand the strengths. Do the same thing with respect to liberalism and other ideologies. So, uh, one, one of the trends I'm seeing that's disturbing is the tendency to assume that um, everything that is called Christian nationalism actually is or that everything that's called Christian actually is. Um, 
You may recall Jesus saying on occasion things like this. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, I never knew you. Even Jesus says that not everything that is done in his name actually should be associated with him. And uh, so we've got to do some more careful thinking and sifting and sorting about these things. Um, okay, so you, you scored. You, you, I'm not going to make you publish the results anywhere. But you may have some fruit for interesting conversation. Can you do that on the way home and not during the worship service? That would be my only request. Yes, please continue the conversation. Just, you know, maybe not while we're worshiping. And uh, let's pray and then we'll go to worship together. Lord Jesus, we are asking you to help us be faithful in the moment you have placed us in. It's a moment when some Christians that we know or or people who believe that they are following and honoring you are heading in directions that seem uh, more nationalistic than Christian. It's a moment when um, uh, there's a secular culture that seems not to know what to do with um, loyalty and allegiance to you. And um, none of that needs to make us afraid. All of it needs to just remind us how much we need you to give us wisdom and to give us love. Help us to love other people as you have loved us. Help us to be faithful in this time and this place as people who love you above everything else. We pray in your name, show yourself to us, Jesus, as we worship you together in the coming hour. That's what we need more than anything else. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture and Christianity. Intown Community Church is located in Atlanta, Georgia. You can find out more information about our church on our website, intown.org. If you would like more information, please contact us at askintown at intown.org.